0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. If you want to use the blue Bible in the seat in front of you, you can find it on page 520. If you're just joining us, we are taking some time this summer to walk through the Psalms, and we are just taking them as they come. We've done this for a few summers, and so we picked up last week, looking at Psalm 42 and 43... And so, if my math is correct, the next number after 43 is 44. I hope so, because that's what I prepared for today. So, we're going to be looking at Psalm 44 this morning. Let me invite you to hear the word of the Lord. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. and have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we're looking at this psalm, I have a question for you this morning. If you were buying a product that you wanted to make sure lasted for a while, would you rather buy one that's only been tested in a controlled environment, like a laboratory, or would you rather have one that's been put through the ringer in real-world situations? Let's imagine, to help unpack this, let's imagine you want to buy a truck. Or let's imagine you want to buy your pastor a truck. I don't know. We'll just throw that out there. Let's say there's two trucks to choose from. For the first truck, I tell you a little, about, a little bit about it. And I tell you, listen, this truck, the scientists, they've performed all the calculations in their offices. And the computer simulations they ran on this truck says that, man, it will hold up to rough treatment. But the testing they did, it was done in this temperature-controlled environment, kept at a comfortable 70.1 degrees, and it was kept free from dust and debris. And in those tests, though, man, the truck did amazing. And as long as you drive it carefully and you keep it on perfectly paved roads in a moderate climate, this truck will be great. Have I sold you yet? That's truck one. Now, the second truck, it was tested differently. And because I was like, I need to give real-world experiences, so I looked up, the first one I found was a Ford truck. So if you're like a Chevy person and that offends you, I'm sorry, but I'm going to talk about Fords. What do they do to Ford trucks before they send them to dealerships? Here's a few of the things they do. Anything on the truck that opens and closes, everything from door handles, windows, locks, tailgates, levers, anything that opens and closes. They simulate 10 years of use. So doors get opened and closed 10,000 times. No, I'm sorry. I was way under 84,000 times. Windows go up and down 26,000 times. Then another test they do, which I think is probably to prepare for Indiana driving, they drive over a track of 2,700 potholes that are, yes, you know, that are four inches deep and up to 30 inches wide. Then rather than a comfortable climate control, they freeze the parts all the way down to negative 60 and start it over and over for about 150 hours Then they turn the temperature up to 250 and run the engine up to 8,000 RPMs, which is really hot, while they're draining the oil, just to see how it'll do. And only once they've convinced that it passes all these crazy, harsh, extreme tests, then they're ready to send trucks like that to the dealership. So which truck do you want? Wouldn't you want one that's been tested and that you know is able to stand up to real world challenges? You don't want one that's only been tested in a lab. You want one that's equipped for situations that are less than perfect. Well, in the same way, one of my goals for us as a church is that we would have a faith in Jesus that's similar. We don't want a faith that only works well in a controlled environment. A faith that's strong when we're in the laboratory of a quiet time or in a church service. But the minute we take it off-road into the challenges of real life, it breaks down. We want a hope in Jesus and the gospel that will hold even when circumstances are far from ideal. We want a faith that keeps going even when the road gets rough. And we have a picture of that kind of faith here in our psalm this morning. And the road in Psalm 44, I think, is one of the roughest. Psalm 44 is another psalm about suffering. But there's two things that stand out about the suffering in this particular psalm. First, notice that this psalm is about corporate suffering look down at your bibles and just notice all the we's us's and ours they're all over i think i counted something like 41 or something it's not just about an individual like we saw last week in psalms 42 and 43 this psalm is about the times when the people of god face suffering suffering together when things are hard for them collectively that's the first thing to notice second thing we'll see about this suffering is that it doesn't make sense. Sometimes life is hard, but but we know why, right? We can point to a certain sin in our life and then realize, you know what? I know that what I'm going through right now, it's just a consequence for that thing I did. I, I get that, I know. Or sometimes we think that we can see how God is using this hard time to do something good for us, right? We kind of say, oh, I think I see the way the dots connect. This is happening so that that will happen, I get it. But then there are times where if we're honest, we have no idea why we're suffering the way we are. It doesn't make any sense to us. We look around our lives for reasons, but we're left with no answers. And the only thing that's worse than something being wrong is not being able to understand why it is. It's like when your car keeps dying on you and you take it to the mechanic but he says, I looked it over but there's, there's no problems with it. You know there is, right? Or even worse, when your body is in pain but you go to the doctors and they can't find anything wrong with you. Not only are you in pain, it doesn't make any sense. I think the hardest kind of suffering to face is when our suffering doesn't make sense where you can't pinpoint a reason, where you can't identify a cause, and yet that's real life, isn't it? Only in an artificial controlled environment does suffering always have an easily identifiable reason. And it's easy to keep trusting then when situations and circumstances are perfect and controlled. You're like, yes, I can keep trusting. But in the real world, suffering often doesn't make sense. So what do we do then? Psalm 44 is a guide for us when together, as the people of God, we face suffering that doesn't make sense. There are four elements of the psalm we're going to look at together this morning. So here's kind of your headers, your roadmap for where we're going. In verses 1 to 8, this song sings about God's previous help then in verses 9 to 16 he transitions into their present suffering verses 17 to 22 looks at their protest of faithfulness and then finally not until the very end do we get to their prayer for help in verses 23 to 26 so let's look where the psalm begins by looking at God's previous help look back to verse 1 they say they, being the people singing the song together, O oh God, we've heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face for you delighted in them. Okay, let's stop there. Here in these first three verses, they start off, very first thing they do is by recalling the ways God has helped his people in the past. Specifically, what they're remembering here is when God helped them conquer the promised land. When they got to the land that he had promised, it was filled with these armies and nations that were Bigger and stronger than them. And even though they were smaller and weaker, God helped them to conquer their enemies. That's what they're remembering and they're recalling, saying, Yes, God, you did that. You overcame the odds. You showed yourself mighty. We remember. And I want to point out three things about these verses. First, they know that their conquering was only by God's help. See that? And there's no doubt they're saying, He did it. They remember. They remember the deeds that you performed, you drove them out, you afflicted, you planted, you caused their fathers to flourish in the land. And then look at verse 3. As if there was any doubt, they say, it wasn't by our own sword. When they say that, what they're saying is, it wasn't because of our superior weapons. It wasn't because we had better resources. Not only that, but it wasn't our own arm that saved us. Meaning, it wasn't our strength. It wasn't our abilities. Instead, what was it? It was God's right hand and his arm and the light of his face. They are absolutely convinced when they look back at the great victories of God's people in the Bible. They're saying it was God who ultimately did it, not the people. He gets the credit because he gave the help. That's the first thing to make sure we see right off the bat. Second, why did he give them that kind of help? Look at verse 3. For you delighted in them. God helped them because he loved them. He took pleasure in his people. He didn't help them because they deserved it. He didn't help them because they earned it or showed themselves worthy of it. He helped them conquer their enemies simply because they were his people and he delighted in them. Third, well, how did they know about it? How did they know about this saving help that God gave because he delighted in them? Verse one tells us, they heard about it from their fathers. The older generations made sure to tell the younger generations the mighty acts of God to help his people in the past. Why did they do that? So that when they face trials and face enemies of their own, the new generation can look back and see how God helps the people that he delights in. And when they see that, their faith will be strengthened so that they too can hope in God. And friends, this this concept is so important for us to embrace. The Bible is filled with reminders of the importance of recounting to younger generations what God has done. Listen to just one example from Psalm 78. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Now listen. Things that we have heard and known. Things that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but we will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Why? That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. This is a beautiful passage and as you hopefully know already this is the driving idea behind our kids ministry. It's why we say on our tagline helping the next generation trust and treasure Jesus that's what we want to be about we want to tell them the great works of God and the gospel we want to tell the generation to come how he saved his people not by their own strength or ability but by his mighty mercy and his sovereign love we want the next generation to know so that they set their hope in God but not only is this for our kids ministry This should be the driving idea behind our parenting as a church, right? We don't just want obedient kids. We do want that. But we don't just want obedient kids. We want kids who hope in God. But listen, it's not just about kids' ministry, and it's not just about parenting. This concept is the call of every single church and every single Christian to tell to the next generation the wonders that God has done for his people through Jesus. So one question that I want to put before you this morning is, is that your aim in life? Simple. Is part of your aim to make sure the next generation, whatever generation you are, do the generations below you know who this God is when we're saying, this is our God. How are you helping to prepare the next generation of Christians? The next generation of church members? The next generation of pastors and elders? The next generation of Sunday school teachers? The next generation of Christian parents and grandparents? The next generations of Christians who teach or in the marketplace who are businessmen? How are you helping to prepare the next generation are you praying the way the psalmist does in Psalm seventy-one, nineteen? Love his prayer. He says this, even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. He's saying, God, be with me. Do not leave me. Keep me hanging on. Don't let me go yet, God, until I accomplish what I need to do. What does he need to do? I got to tell the people to come who you are and what you've done. That's why I don't want you to forsake me is because I got people to tell. They need to know, God, do you pray that way? That's what's happened for the singers here in Psalm 44. They've been on the receiving end of that. Someone proclaimed to them. And because of that, now they are recalling God's previous help to his people that they'd been told about. Then in verses 4 to 8, there's a little bit of a shift. While while they're still reflecting on God's previous help, they move now from the distant past to the more recent past in their own lifetime. Look at verse 4. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob through you we push down our foes through your name we tread down those who rise up against us for not in my bow do I trust nor can my sword save me but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us in God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever okay so let's walk through this in verse 4 remember this is a corporate psalm But in verse 4, each singer gets personal, right? Because the corporate is made up of the individual. So as they walk through suffering they face together, in verse 4, each person declares his own allegiance to God as their king. Each is acknowledging, you're my king, oh God. You're the one we're looking to for salvation. And then just like they did with God's help in the distant past, Now they proclaim it's only through God's help that they too have seen his mighty work with their own eyes. They acknowledge they weren't able to save themselves. They're not trusting in their own bow or their own sword. They can't save them. It was God and God alone that saved them from their foes. They would be singing right along with us, you are the God who saves us, worthy of all our praises. And then notice in verse eight, both past and future tenses we have boasted in what you've done in the past and we will thank you forever by looking at how God has helped them in the past it gives them confidence to trust him that he will help them now and into the future which will result in their thanks these first eight verses I think have a really key lesson to teach us When these people's suffering doesn't make sense to them, where's the first place they go? The first place they go is not why, but who. They remind themselves of who their God is. What has he done for them in the past? They remember his power and his help, both in the history of his people, but also in their own lives. And as they recall God's previous help, it strengthens their hope for today. But then as we move to the next section, that expectation of God's help for today is what makes their present suffering so jarring, so disorienting. They expect triumphs like the days of old that we just talked about. But instead, they're facing humiliating losses. The sufferings that they list out here basically fall into two main categories defeat and disgrace. Look first at their defeat in verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You've made us like sheep for slaughter. And have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. So instead of leading their armies to these great conquests like before, God has let them be slaughtered like sheep. Imagine how confusing and baffling this was to them. God had given them victory after victory after victory. And even when it looked unlikely, even when they faced long odds and difficult battles, God had come through again and again and again. But now the enemy is crushing them. Their foes have them on the run and they are robbing them of their things and taking them as spoil. Verse 12 says, God had sold his people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. I loved how one commentator put it. He said, what the people are saying, they're saying, God, you've sold us for garage sale prices. It's not like marked up at a store. You didn't get a a lot of money for us. You're like, listen, the main thing, I don't care how much I get for it. I just want them gone. But it wasn't just their defeat they were dealing with. It was also the disgrace that came with it. Listen to what they were facing in verse 13. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. In these verses, the psalm just piles up words to talk about how they're being mocked by their enemies. They are taunted, derided, scorned, a laughingstock. In other words, God's people have become the butt of people's jokes. They are constantly shamed and disgraced. And as we look through the psalm, I mean, can't we relate to this sometimes? Again, think corporately when the suffering that we face together as God's people looks kind of like this those seasons when a church goes through hard times when the people around them just mock and point and say what are you guys doing you guys are a joke look at those Christians have you guys heard about that church you know what they believe they're so backwards The seasons when it feels like we're losing ground all around us and we face setback after setback. And when that happens, can it be unsettling and confusing? Especially when you remember how powerfully God has helped in the past. We look back to past events, whether church history or even the life of your own church experience, and you say, God, I don't get it. I remember what you did back then, but right now, why does it look so different? You compare the previous help to the present suffering, and that equation just doesn't add up. It just doesn't make sense. But even though these singers in Psalm 44, even though they didn't know why they were suffering, they did know who was sovereign over it. Did you notice the repeated refrain in verses 9 to 16? You have, you have. You have. You have. Who are they talking about? Who's you? God is. They're saying this to God. You've done all these things, God. And you need to know this, this isn't a snarky accusation. They're not irreverent here. They're not angrily blaming God. They're simply acknowledging the truth that just as much as God was sovereign in their successes, he's still sovereign in their sufferings. They don't know why they're going through this, but they do know that ultimately it's God's hand that's behind it. And this shouldn't surprise us, should it? This should sound very familiar from 1 Peter. What did we see over and over and over there? Peter telling the Christians, we will suffer according to God's will. If necessary, we'll face various trials. He will bring suffering, both personal and corporate, into the lives of his people to accomplish his good purposes in us. So when we face those various trials, if necessary, it's so that our faith can be tested, run through the ringer, put through those extreme, harsh conditions, and shown to be genuine. It'll be road-tested to prove that it's real and that it will hold up. Because, friends, remember, God is preparing not just persons, but a people to be his son's bride. And the aisle we walk down to meet our groom is the path of suffering. But knowing all this doesn't magically solve all our problems. When we suffer, it can still be confusing and still not make any sense to us. Sometimes we still can't understand, why, we're go- why am I going through this like, not just in the abstract like suffering, but, God, why, why is this happening? God, why does it seem like you've rejected us? Why does it seem like you're not helping us the way you have in the past? And often when our suffering doesn't make sense, one of our first looks is inward. Right? We wonder, have I done something? What, what sin is it in my life that's causing this suffering? Haven't you found that to be true? That when things are hard in your life, we often assume that the hardship we're facing is somehow connected to a wrong we've done. But that's what only adds to the confusion of the people in this psalm. They've searched their collective hearts and they can't find any cause for God to do this. In verses 17 to 22, they lay out their protest of faithfulness. Look there, listen to what they say. They say, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we've not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. They're so confused here because they can't identify any sin that might be the cause of this suffering. If they could just put their finger on and say, oh, this makes sense that we're experiencing this because collectively, we've been a little apathetic in our worship. Or we, you know, people haven't been giving generously to the Lord. Or... There's been some division. There's something that they can point to and say, oh, that makes sense. That's happening, so now we're suffering. But they're confused because they haven't forgotten God. They haven't been living like they don't have a God. And they haven't broken his covenant with them. Instead, they're saying, God, we've been faithful. And this is really important to note, that word faithful. Because what they're claiming here is not sinlessness, like, don't read this and just brush it off as some, that, like, they're just so un, self-unaware. Like, oh, you guys are sinning just because you can't see it. No, 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 no. They're not claiming sinlessness. They're claiming covenant faithfulness. They're not saying they have no sin. They're saying the sin they do have, they've dealt with according to the way the covenant prescribed. Namely, through an atoning sacrifice for sin. And that's really important to get because once you get that, Christian, you realize we can pray that way too. To be able to pray, verses 17 to 22, we don't need to be sinless. We need to be dealing with our sin the way our covenant, the new covenant, prescribes. Through repentance and faith and the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And when we're doing that, we can say what they say here. They've been faithful, they say, both in their affections and in their actions. Do you see that? They say, our heart hasn't turned back. We're still, like, you're still the desire of our hearts. We still love you. You're what we want and long for. And in their actions, they say, and our steps haven't departed from your way. Even in their confusion and pain, they're saying, we haven't turned to another God. We haven't abandoned you. We haven't sought comfort and sinful pleasure they said, God, you see our hearts. We can't lie to you. You would know if we did. And that's why their suffering makes no sense to them. Because they haven't done anything to deserve it. In that sense, they're innocent. And this is a theme that we see all throughout the Bible. The suffering of the innocent. Think about Job. Think about Daniel. Think about his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Bible makes clear there's not always a link between our sin and our suffering. Hear me, sometimes there is, but not always. When the disciples looked at the man born blind, what was the question they asked Jesus? They said, okay, well, there's a blind guy. So Jesus, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? What's the assumption? Somebody sinned. We're just not sure who. Was it him or was it his parents? But what did Jesus say? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God was going to use this suffering to display his power. And I think from my own personal experience conversations with people, that the question people stumble over more than any other when it comes to issues of faith is why do bad things happen to good people? But when people ask that, rarely have I heard them ask the question that ought to go with it. The question that takes it to its logical extreme. They say, why do bad things happen to good people? But nobody asks, why did the worst thing happen to the best person? We're interested in why do bad things happen to good people? Well, what about the worst thing and the best person? Because in Jesus, we see the ultimate case of innocent suffering. He never sinned. He was spotless. There wasn't a tiny blemish on his record. And yet he suffered as if he was a horrible, despicable sinner. He did absolutely nothing wrong, and yet he faced the wrath of God. Why? To pay for our sin. To display the power of God to save sinners. And to provide the sacrifice we need so that we can be his covenant people. And when we belong to Jesus, the innocent sufferer, we follow in his steps. We too will face suffering that's not directly connected to any sin we've committed. As verse 22 says, We will face suffering simply because we belong to him. As they say, for your sake. It's because we're your people, God. It's for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Just like we saw in 1 Peter, we will face persecution because we belong to Jesus. But hear this. Even though we might face suffering without cause, we will never face suffering without purpose. And while we don't know all God's purposes in our suffering, he graciously lets us see one here in the last section. That purpose we see in the last section is to drive us back to desperate dependence and prayer. Look with me at verse 23. This is their prayer for help. They say, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever! Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. As you read these verses, you can, you can hear the desperation in their voice. And when you're suffering, especially when it doesn't make any sense, I love their prayer because in those moments... When you're just at your wits end and your heart is in turmoil, you cut through all the jargon and prayer. And instead you pray bold, direct prayers. Verse 23, they just pray, God, wake up! As they're going through this, they feel like, God, it feels like you're asleep. They start to feel like the disciples did in the boat with Jesus when they were going across the sea and the storm hit. The waves are crashing, the boat's filling up with water. And remember, what did they say to Jesus? Jesus, wake up. Don't you care that we're perishing? Now, we know that's a ridiculous question, right? Of course he cared. But when we're suffering, isn't it easy to wonder if God knows or cares what it is we're going through? When it makes no sense, we want to pray the same way, don't we? Wake up, God! God! Where are you in this? Are you sleeping? Don't you care? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? Friends, here's the really, really good news. Our God never sleeps and our God never forgets. Psalm 121 says, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This is good news because the God who helps us never falls asleep on the job. He's never too worn out from the help he gave you yesterday to say, I just need a day to recover. He says, I don't sleep. When you need help, I'm there and I'm wide awake, ready to save. And not only does he not sleep, we never slip his mind. Isaiah 49, Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. To which God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands, God said. He's saying, Christian, I won't forget you. In case you're worried, I look at my hands and see your name there. So we can boldly pray, rise up, God, come to our help. And when we do, we can be confident that he will hear us and he will help us because he's awake and he's not forgetting. Jesus will come to us and he showed us on that cross. He will come to us. And when those same hands that bear our names were pierced by nails for us, we see that demonstrated. Friends, Jesus faced Psalm 44 on our behalf. He was rejected and disgraced. He was sold for a trifle, a mere 30 pieces of silver. Soldiers divided his garments like spoil. He was taunted and scorned, and he was slaughtered like a sheep as God hid his face. Even though he had not forgotten God, he had been faithful. And because he was, we have hope. Because notice what our hope for God's help is based on in verse 26. Not our own faithfulness, but on God's according to his character and his steadfast love that's what their prayer hinges on they don't say god hear us because we haven't abandoned you. they say god hear us for the sake of your steadfast love to wrap this up i want to go back to verse 22 for a second as we as you probably know when when we read over it it sounds familiar because paul quotes that verse right in romans 8 And how Paul uses verse 22 in Romans 8 is really helpful for us when our suffering doesn't make sense. Because Paul's not just plucking a verse out of nowhere, just, oh, that reminds me. He's got Psalm 44 in his mind. He's seeing a parallel, and so he's saying, he's drawing a connection. See, in Romans 8, he's writing to Christians, to people like you and me as followers of Jesus, and he's telling them in Romans 8, you will face suffering. You will face suffering on your way to glory. In fact, he tells them, you will groan as you wait for the day your redemption is complete. It's going to be, there's going to be pain. There's going to be groaning. In fact, there's going to be times you won't even know how to pray. Then as he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, about being killed for God's sake and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, He sandwiches it between two glorious realities for us to hang on to when suffering doesn't make sense. On one side of the verse, he says this. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So he's saying, before he gets to that verse about being killed like sheep, he said, listen, God is for us. I know that you're facing enemies, I know it seems like they're winning, but do you understand you can't lose? Who's going to condemn you? It is God who justifies He's saying God is our help, and he's proven it on the cross by giving you his son. And now that son, the risen Jesus, is at his right hand doing what? Praying for our help. But if that weren't enough, he says, no, no, there's actually a flip side to this too. Because right after he quotes that, he answers this question Will any of our sufferings separate us from the love of Christ? What about tribulation? or distress what if there's persecution what if there's famine or nakedness what if there's just a lot of danger even the sword what if we die will that separate us from the love of Christ you know Paul's answer no in all these things we are more than conquerors just like they conquered the promised land we're more than conquerors how through him who loved us For I'm sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And friends, that inseparable, steadfast love of God, that's our hope. We are not promised that God will always make sense of our suffering. But we are promised that our suffering will never separate us from the love of God. So when the suffering of God's people doesn't make sense, may we do what Psalm 44 calls us to do. Remember his previous help. Pour out our present sufferings. Protest our faithfulness. And pray to him for help with the confidence He will rise up and come to our help. Why? For the sake of his great love for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we stand amazed by your love for us. We feel so unworthy of it and so inadequate to receive it. And yet, God, that doesn't stop you. You just lavish it upon us you are an ever-flowing fountain of love towards your people. So God, we rejoice in that and we praise you for that and we pray that that would be the foundation of our hope today. Lord, as we face various trials and challenges, would we not look to our own arm or our own weaponry, but would we look to you, the God who saves us? Would we, when times are hard, remember to look back and see that the same God who worked then is the same God now. Your son Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So may we continue to look to him as he was strong and kind to our forefathers, so is he strong and kind to us. And would you make us faithful to proclaim this good news of a God who saves because of his love to a generation yet to come? Would each of us, no matter how old or how young, devote our lives to passing on the good news of who you are and what you've done? Lord, even now as we close with this song, would it, would it stoke that fire that not just here in our congregation or even in our neighborhoods, but to the ends of the earth, would you use us to make your great name known? God, we worship you for the God that you are and we pray that you would help us to hope in your steadfast love, even as we wait for you. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray and all God's people said, amen.